continuing this series called Goals, which is really kind of uh, starting off the new year, talking about the practices that so many of us do at the beginning of a new year and the goals and resolutions that we make to figure out how do we make our lives better this year than it was last year. And I want to give a huge thank you and shout out to my sister, Pastor Beth Miller, for an amazing message last weekend. How many of you were blessed by that word she brought forth? So, so good. I hope you guys are choosing and practicing gratitude. Uh, you know, but uh, continue this series today. Uh, I'm excited to be back in the pulpit. I've had a couple weeks off, some couple needed weeks of, of respite. Uh, my wife is at home. She's recovering from a, a medical procedure she had done a couple of weeks ago, and she sends her love and her greetings. She can't wait to be back here with all of you and leading worship. I know that she was sad this morning that she couldn't be here, but she wanted me to make sure that I said hello to all of you guys. Uh, so she looks forward to seeing you guys. But, you know, it's a little funny and I guess a little sad at the same time when we talk about New Year's resolutions that the older we get, the more cynical we get, even when it comes to making the New Year's resolutions, even to the point where many of us, because it's been this funny thing where we make the resolutions, we break them and never accomplish them, that we just give up trying on them. So it's, we just get cynical the older we get. And so just to kind of, you know, in preparation for today's message, I did a quick Google search on funny 2019 resolutions, and I wanted to show you a couple of these. You know, last week, my sister started off the message by saying for a lot of people, New Year's goals and resolutions are more like wishes. It's like, you know, rubbing the genie in a bottle and making a wish, and it's just supposed to magically happen. And so I found this one picture that I wanted to show you that says, dear, throw up the first one, dear 2019, my New Year wish is for me to be thinner and for my wallet to be fatter. Please don't mix them up again like 2018 did. Yeah. New Year's wishes. This one's actually pretty true for me because I started off the year, you know, with a goal to lose 20 pounds and uh, only two weeks into the new year and I only have 25 pounds to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not, it's going the wrong way for me. Not, not doing so well. Here's another one I found. Throw up the next one. My goal in 2019 is to accomplish the goals I set in 2018, which I should have done in 2017, because I made a promise in 2016, which I planned in 2015. This one's actually pretty, you know, dead on for me as well, because I was just talking to my wife yesterday, and uh, she asked me this question as we were in the kitchen just talking. She goes, Pete, did you ever, did you ever run a half marathon? I'm like, no, why? She's like, because this thing just popped up in my time hop. Those of you that use Facebook know the time hop app kind of shows you pictures you've posted in previous years on that same day. And throw up this next picture that was in her time hop. She said, eight years ago, yesterday, I'm so proud of my hubby. He's training for a half marathon and he's being so disciplined and is doing a great job. I admire him so much. I love you, Peter. Guess what I didn't do? eight years ago. I never ran a half marathon. So maybe, who knows, 2019 might be the year that I accomplished the goal that I set in 2011. Who are we kidding? Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen this year. <laughs> but in this series, we're kind of trying to take a fresh look at the goals that we set each year, you know, because it's easy to set a goal but it's another thing to take steps towards that goal. One of the taglines for this series has been this saying, it's direction, not intention, that determines destination. 
Another thing that you've heard me say in the past, and one of my favorite quotes, is the proof of desire is in the pursuit. You can say you want something, but the proof of how badly you want it will be evident in how hard you're willing to work for that thing that you say you want. It's direction, not intention, that determines destination. We all want to get somewhere, but wanting to get somewhere, wanting to accomplish something will not determine whether or not you actually get there. You have to set a course and you have to take steps in the direction heading towards your destination. This is true in every area of your life. It's true in marriage. You can say you want a better marriage, but saying you want a better marriage isn't going to give you a better marriage. You have to take steps in that direction. You have to invest in your marriage. You can say you want to get out of debt in 2019. That's a great goal to have. It's a great intention to have, but the intention is not going to get you out of debt. If your direction is towards Amazon Prime or towards the mall where you swipe your credit card to buy more stuff that you don't need, direction, not intention, will determine your destination. Maybe your direction should be towards attending Financial Peace University, which begins tomorrow, so you can learn some good financial principles. It's true in your relationship with God, too. I mean, we all want to grow in our walk with God, but... What direction are you heading? What are you doing? What steps are you taking to arrive at the destination that you want to arrive at? So as Pastor Beth shared last week, this series is not intended to really be a practical five steps on how to accomplish your goals type of series. You can read any number of self-help books that will help you figure out how to do that. This series, rather, though, is intended to help you kind of, as she said, recalibrate your settings as you're making your goals and help ensure that you're headed in the right direction. Because again, direction, not intention, determines your destination. That's, again, a powerful truth that you can apply to every area of your life. But I've discovered that when it comes to the goals that we set for our lives, most of them are centered around us. It's my goals, it's my wants, it's my wishes, it's my aspirations. I, I want to get out of debt this year. I want a better marriage. I want to go on vacation this year. And those are all great goals, but they're all me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. Me, myself, and I. Most of our goals are all about me. And so today's message isn't going to be a secret tip on how to help you accomplish whatever goals you've set for yourself this year as much as it is a suggestion and even maybe a challenge uh, for you to make this one of your goals. And I'll tell you what this is in just a few moments. I feel a particular burden to preach this message today. In fact, if I could only preach one message for the rest of my life, this might just be that message. It's a message for the church. And let me say, if you're not a Christ follower, if you're a seeker, you are totally welcome here. We're glad that you're here. And I think you'll get something out of this message too, because even non-Christians will say that the most fulfilled people are those who give their lives for others, not those who are focused only on themselves. But I, in fact, believe that if Jesus had a chance to talk to his church, not to the world, but to the church, I'm pretty convinced that this might be the message he would give them. And so I'm praying that what God has laid on my heart to share with you today would both challenge us and change us as we head into 2019. 
So John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bible or an iPad or an iPhone, you can turn there now. If you don't, you can turn your eyelids onto the screens where we will have the words up there for you. And as you're turning there, I just kind of want to set the stage for you, give you a little bit of the context for what we're about to read in John chapter 4. This is a story that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with of Jesus with a woman at the well. And it's one of the few times we see in the Gospels of Jesus kind of being separated from his disciples. They're off running an errand, and in the meantime, while they're away, Jesus is a little bit thirsty from the journey they were just on and decides to go to a nearby well to get some water. And as he's there, there is a woman there, and in that culture, in that context, it was protocol that a a man would not speak to a woman, wouldn't even look at a woman, because in that culture, I hate to say it, but men considered themselves as superior to women. But Jesus goes right up to her and strikes up a conversation with her, which tells me that he came to smash the gender barrier. But not only was she a woman, she was a Samaritan woman. And there was a long-standing feud between Jews and Samaritans, which were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds. There was 700 years of racial tension. So in striking up this conversation with her, he also smashes the racial barrier. In this one conversation, Jesus smashes two barriers, the gender barrier and the race barrier. And he asks her for a drink, and she says to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, a Gentile, for water? And Jesus responds to her and says, if you knew who it was that was asking, you'd ask him, and he would give you living water. And intrigued by this, she says, well, I want some of that. And Jesus says to her, why don't you go get your husband and come back then? And she's like, well, yeah, about that. I'm not actually married. Um, And Jesus says, you're right. You're not. You've actually had five husbands. And the one you're living with right now is not your husband either. And she's like, oh, snap. Uh, He just read my mail. Like, I perceivest thou to be a prophet is what the King James Version says there. She's like, yeah, you're not an average Joe. I know that you're somebody different. You, there's no way you could have known anything like that about my life unless you were a prophet. But like so many of us do when our sins get pointed out, she tries to kind of divert the attention and switches the topic and talks about the proper place to worship. And after some back and forth on that, you know, she says, well, I know that there is a Messiah coming. And when he comes, he, he'll explain all of this to us. He'll, he'll clear it up. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am the Messiah. She's like, Whoa, I can, I'm sure you can imagine in this moment, I want you to feel the gravity of this conversation as she, as he now fully has her attention. And that's where I want to pick up in the story in John chapter four, verse 27 says this, just then. So they're having this conversation. He reveals to her that he's the Messiah. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman for the reasons that I just told you about. So they're kind of shocked. They're like talking to themselves. Oh my gosh, he's talking to a woman. What's he doing? But then John does something that kind of breaks the rules of storytelling. If you remember English class, they give you the rules for what you do when you tell a story. But John actually includes details that didn't happen. Why would he do that unless he wishes they had happened? I want you to just tuck that into the back of your mind for a second. We'll come back to it. Recounting the story after the fact, John writes, but no one asked, what do you want? 
Now, this would have been common courtesy. Like, is there anything you need, Jesus? Can we get anything for you? But John wants his readers to know that neither he nor any of the other disciples asked if Jesus needed anything. Why did he do that? Unless there was something that he wanted us to know about that. And he writes, not only did we not ask him if he wanted anything, but we also didn't ask him, why are you talking with a woman? Why are you talking with her? Now, if, if you're a disciple and you walk up on your rabbi, your teacher, who's doing something that was out of the ordinary, something that you wouldn't expect, don't you think you should ask, hey, Jesus, what's up? <laughs> this isn't normal. Can you, can you explain this to me, please? We're your disciples. We want to learn from you. Why are you talking to a woman? I think what John was doing by pointing out these details of, of non-events, of things that didn't happen, was to illustrate just how selfish they were being in that moment. They weren't concerned with what Jesus wanted or what he was doing. They were only concerned about themselves, and you'll see that in just a moment. But I wonder how often that could be said of us as well, that we're not really concerned with what Jesus wants. Instead, we're only focused on what we want. Jesus, these are my goals. Can you help me accomplish them this year, please? Just then in verse 28, leaving her water jar. So I'm sure the moment gets a little bit tense. The disciples stroll up on them and they're all like talking under their breath. And she's like, I'm out, you know. And, and so she, she leaves her water jar, goes back to the town and says to the people, I think I found God. Like, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Then check this out, verse 30. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So imagine with me, if you will, this woman leading a bunch of people. It doesn't tell us how many. In my mind, as I read the story, I kind of picture, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100 people following this woman who, who, whose mind was totally blown by what he knew about her. And her case must have been pretty convincing. The first evangelist we see in the New Testament era is a woman. So she's bringing all these people out to meet Jesus. And I find this next part kind of funny. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I try to put myself there. And there are certain things sometimes that strike me as funny. And I don't know if you'll see this as funny, but the next word says in verse 31, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, let's go get something to eat. Let's go to Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you think that's funny, but I do. Like this pile of people are walking towards them and they want to go to lunch. I mean, my sister talked about food last week and I'm going to talk about food this week. What can I say? It runs in the family. I think eating should be a spiritual gift. I know, I know it's one of mine. But then Jesus did something that he often did. A lot of times when he was in conversation, people would bring something up and then he would use that topic as a metaphor to teach a spiritual truth. So they bring up food and look at what Jesus says next to them in verse 32. He says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And of course, we know what he means by that. He says, I'm fulfilled, but I want to have a conversation with these people that are talking, that are, that are coming out to meet me. But then look at what his disciples say. And this is, again, this is kind of funny to me. Verse 33, his disciples look and say to each other, like, could someone have brought him some food? Did he eat before we got back? They're still focused on the food. 
I don't know why that's kind of funny, but it is. And I guess to me, it's, it's funny because these, these, they're with Jesus and they're, they're missing it. They're with him and they're missing the moment. They didn't care what he wanted. They didn't care really why he was talking to a woman, which was socially unacceptable in their times. They're, they're missing the fact that there's a whole pile of people walking towards them. And even when Jesus is trying to tell them, they're still missing it. And if Jesus' disciples could miss it, I wonder if we can too. So Jesus tries again using the same analogy. Verse 34, he continues, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his, everyone say this next word with me, to finish his work, to finish his work. Jesus is saying, I like Chick-fil-A just as much as anyone, but we got work to do, guys. He's saying, the reason I came is to bring hope and healing to broken people. That's what sustains me. He's saying, you guys are missing the moment because you're too focused on yourselves. And listen, this is true for all of us sometimes as well. There is a gravitational pull inside of every single one of us towards selfishness. And I'm including myself in that as well. You leave me alone and I'm going to take care of me. That's just how we are. We focus on ourselves. And so I need to be reminded from time to time that there are piles of people all around us who need the hope that resides within me. That while my belly is wanting lunch and I have needs of my own, I have to train myself to think of and see others around me. And look at what he says next in verse 35. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until the harvest. So he's quoting this procrastination colloquialism that they had in their time. This was a saying that they had in their culture, which was a way of saying, oh, we'll do it later. It's four months and then the harvest. We'll take care of that later. Don't you have a saying four months until the harvest? But he says, I tell you, everyone say these next three words with me. Open your eyes. One more time, every voice. Open Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. The O in goals is open your eyes. This is what I'm suggesting to be one of your goals this year. It's one of the goals that I've set for myself this year is that I would open my eyes. Not only do I believe that this should be one of the goals of our lives to live with eyes wide open to the people around us, but I truly believe that if Jesus could tell his church anything today, it would be open your eyes. Look at the fields around you. They are ripe for harvest. If Jesus could stand here right where I'm standing in this pulpit and say anything to you, to believers, if he was talking to seekers and people who weren't sure what they believed, he would say something different. But if he were talking to believers, he would say, open your eyes I want you guys to see buffalo the way I see buffalo. Look at the fields. They're ripe. Open your eyes. Because listen, you can't reach what you can't see. You can't love what you can't see. The problem, though, is that some of us just don't see very well. You know, I have, I have perfect vision. I actually have 2015 vision. Uh, a little more than a year ago, I got LASIK eye surgery and uh, have the joy of being able to see crystal clear now. And, uh, but up until that time, I had to wear corrective lenses. From the time I was a teenager, I uh, had or- horrible eyesight and I had to wear corrective lenses. Uh, when I was younger, it was glasses and then I switched to contacts. And I don't know if 
any of you wear corrective lenses, but the first time I went to the doctor, my parents could tell that I probably needed, you know, glasses because they saw me kind of squinting and straining to see things that were far away. And so the first time I go to the doctor, it was really weird. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of unnerving, but you go in to see better. And the first thing they do is kind of put stuff in your eyes that makes you feel like you can't see anything at all. And I, and I hate when doctors just like, when they don't tell you what they're going to do, they just start doing stuff. So he tells me to put my chin in this machine. And the next thing I know, it's like they blow air in my eyeballs. Like, what the heck was that? I'm like Warner Brother first or something. Dude, I hate it. He's like, that was a glaucoma check. If you ever had it, you know what I'm talking about. It's the worst part of the eye exam. Like you're, now that I know what it is, I'm anticipating it. And so I'm like trying to keep my eyeballs open. It's, it's awful. And then the next thing I know, he's like this far from my face, you know, looking in my eyeball, my cornea or something like that. I'm like, bro, you better either back up or get a Tic Tac or something. (laughs) And then they start like switching these lenses on this machine. Like, which is better? A or B, B or A, A or B, A. I don't know. They both look good. It's like so much pressure. What if I answer wrong? You know, you know what I'm talking about? If you've been there, I hated the whole thing. And then he leaves the room for a couple minutes, comes back and says, well, we got you figured out. And I said, well, I hope so. That's what you get paid to do. And he says, you're nearsighted. And I look at him. I said, doc, you don't understand. The near stuff is good. It's the far stuff that I can't see. You got it wrong. He's like, no. And I thought he would do what most doctors do and name the problem. But I learned that day optometry is the only medical profession that names what is good with you. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Can someone please explain this to me? It's like going to the doctor for a broken arm and him telling you, well, your legs work. It's dumb. Can somebody fix it, please? It's like you're nearsighted because you can only see what's near. Somebody please fix that. Can somebody like write the medical board or something? It doesn't make any sense. So a week later, I go back and and get my glasses, and I walk out of there amazed at the new world that I see. Everything is clear, 3D, high def, and loved it. And I think nearsightedness isn't only a natural condition. I think nearsightedness can be a spiritual condition as well. When we're only focused on what's right around us, things that are close to you, things that only really matter to you, and everything else is a blur, And what I cannot see, I don't feel responsible for. It's like when you're merging into traffic, and if you make eye contact with the person who's driving in the lane that you're trying to get into, they feel obliged to let you in. I mean, if they're a polite human being anyway, you know. But sometimes you can tell that people are almost purposefully not looking because they know if they look at you and they catch your eye, they kind of like, all right, go ahead, you know. We don't feel responsible for things that we can't see. Sometimes we live our lives this way. If I don't see you, I'm not responsible for you. You can tell if you're spiritually nearsighted by what you pray for. If God answered all your prayers, would it change the world or would it just change you? Think about that. Which is why missions trips can be so important because it forces you to be up close to things that are normally outside of your field of view. It expands your horizon. It gives you a different perspective. So maybe you would consider coming to the interest meeting this Thursday to learn more about the trip that we're thinking about taking this summer. When we're spiritually nearsighted, we can get blinded to our own needs. 
Nearsightedness isn't only a physical condition. It's an actual spiritual condition. In fact, Jesus' uh, disciple Peter writes about this. The apostle Peter writes about it in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. And I'm not going to read it. I don't have time to. You can write it down if you want to and look it up when you get home. But he says that spiritual nearsightedness actually makes you ineffective and unproductive. Do you know that God wants you to be effective and productive? It's okay to set goals, but let's just make sure that as we set goals, we're setting the right goals and that we're being productive in the right things. Listen, if this is your church, we're going to do everything we can to help you follow Jesus step by step. But as your pastor, listen to me, your church should never exist primarily for you. I believe the church exists to bring hope and healing to a lost and broken world. And if you are a Christ follower, we don't go to church. We are the church and we exist for the world. So my question to you today is if you could see the world the way Jesus sees it, what would you see? I'm going to give you a very simple but I believe very scriptural answer to that question. On this Sunday, January 13th, 2019, when he looks at the world, I don't believe Jesus primarily sees a bunch of churches gathered around all over the face of the world worshiping him. Scripture says it over and over again. In fact, Jesus says it three times in one chapter, Luke 15, that he's not looking for found things. He's looking for lost things. He's focused on that which is lost. Luke 15 has three parables that Jesus gives, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. He is focused on lost people. And you know, if you think about it, we're that way too. Think about the times you've ever lost something of value to you, your, your phone, your wallet, your keys, whatever. When you lose it, you're focused on your lost thing. You're not thinking about your found things. When you're, you know, searching around the house looking for your phone, where's my phone, where's my phone, where's my phone? You're not like, well, there's my couch, We don't do that, right? In other words, when you're looking for something that is lost, you're not taking inventory of the things that you have that are found. And I think maybe our God is that way a little bit too. Didn't Jesus say, I came to seek and save the lost? When he looks at the earth, I don't believe he's taking inventory of all of his found things, his people. I think he's looking for his lost kids and he's waiting for his found kids to take up and partner with him in the mission that he gave us to pick up where he left off to seek and save the lost. Now I want to be careful with this because listen, as your pastor, I'm not saying that as soon as you enter a relationship with him that he doesn't care about you. He does. He is a good, good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. He told us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. We're invited into an intimate relationship with a heavenly father who is crazy about us and knows everything there is to know about us. He knows the hairs on your head. I just think sometimes that too many of our prayers are focused on our wants and wishes and not enough on what God wants. And he wants none to perish and all to come to repentance. Let me put it to you this way. Those of you who are parents, have you ever lost one of your children? Like when we were younger, our kids were uh, young and we thought we actually lost Sammy for a little while. And if you've ever experienced this, it's one of the most terrifying things that you'll ever go through as a parent. 
Um, Isaac was an infant. He was in an infant carrier still and in a stroller. And Sammy was, you know, a very curious and inquisitive toddler walking around, checking things out. We were shopping one time. And the McKinley Mall, I believe it was, we were at JCPenney's, and she thought I was keeping an eye on Sammy, and I thought she was keeping an eye on Sammy. And, you know, we were both distracted by the clothes that we were looking at, and almost at the same time, we both realized, where's Sammy? And in that moment, like, panic sets in. If you've ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. It's the worst feeling in the entire world when you feel like you've lost one of your kids, and all of these horrible scenarios start playing out in your mind. And in that moment, we both start looking for Sammy. Sammy, where are you? Sammy, where are you? And can I tell you something? When I was looking for Sammy, I wasn't thinking about Isaac, because Isaac wasn't lost. Sammy was. And so we're going around, we're looking, and I think sometimes you know, Isaac was a baby at the time, but, and he would never say anything like this, but you know, he, if he was older, he would have never said, hey, dad, what's for dinner tonight as we're looking for Sammy? It's a fine question if Sammy isn't missing, but it's a horrible one if he is. And I wonder what our prayers sound like sometimes to God. Like, really? You, you want to talk about that? I mean, I love you, but didn't I tell you that if you seek me first, I'd take care of all of your needs? Again, I want you to hear my heart on this because intimacy is one of the core messages of my life. I am all about encouraging people to go deeper in their faith, to fall in love with Jesus. I'm not saying that he doesn't care for you. He taught us to pray and ask for our daily bread, right? He wants us to ask him for the things that we need. But if you look at order of priority, when he taught us to pray, he taught us to pray his kingdom come, his will be done before we ask for our daily bread. And what is his will? He wants all to come to repentance. I think he wants us as his kids, those of us who are found, to spend less time worrying about the things that he's already promised he's going to take care of and join him and start praying for and getting on mission with him to seek and save that which is still lost. So we're searching and we're looking for Sammy. I run up to the first woman I see and I said, have you seen my son? And she kind of flippantly just says no and then continues shopping. Let me tell you, I almost lost my salvation in that moment as I instantly got irritated at her inactivity because something of value to me was missing. And I wonder, church, I wonder if God ever doesn't feel that way sometimes too about his kids. I wonder if, I know he loves us, I know he loves it when we gather and worship and praise him, but I wonder if he ever gets irritated at our inactivity when something of value to him, people who are lost, people who are created in his image on purpose, for a purpose, as we go about our daily lives not worrying about the things that are lost to God. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Listen, we're a church that unapologetically and aggressively goes after the lost. I often tell Christians who come and check out our church, and say, I say to them, listen, if, if you're looking for a church that's just for you, this, this may not be your church. But if you like looking for lost things, I think you'll love it here. Because we're going to do everything we can short of sin to reach people with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. That's why the church exists. <laughs> 
That's why Jesus said to his disciples as the town are coming towards them, really, you want to go to lunch? Would you open your eyes? Look at the people coming towards us. So what do we need to open our eyes to? I'm going to give you three things today in closing to kind of give you some handles on this and figure out how you can apply it to your life. Number one, we need to open our eyes to who they are. Open our eyes to who they are. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one because I, I know, listen, I know that people can be irritating. I mean, are you meeting the same people I do? Sometimes people can just irritate the fire out of you, right? But we need to open our eyes to see them the way God sees them. And what I want us to understand is that we need to be careful when someone is acting obnoxious or annoying or being hurtful. Understand that there's a reason that they're maybe acting that way because hurting people hurt people. And we need to see that they were made in his image too. And can you see the image of God and the people that are irritating the fire out of you? We got to open our eyes to who they are. Number two, we got to open our eyes to where they are. What I mean by that is for those of you who are found, you are now officially on the search committee. Because found people find people. Open your eyes to the opportunities that are available to you every single day. What I call divine encounters. When we're walking around life just doing this, like, oh, I've got to take care of this today, and I've got to do this, and I've got to go run and do that, and me, 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 I, I, I. We, we need to look up and open our eyes to, you know, these opportunities that God puts in front of us every day where he has strategically and specifically caused this person to intersect your path on this specific time because you've gone through something that they're going through now. And if you would open your eyes when you go out to lunch after church today, you know, you might see an opportunity to to minister to your waiter or waitress. We got to open our eyes to where they are. I'm not saying that every encounter with a random stranger is a divine encounter, but I think we miss more of them than we realize because we're too focused on ourselves. Listen, you're listening to a guy who's incredibly self-absorbed at times. Just ask my wife. You know, um, Every Friday, I take my boys. My boys are homeschooled. My wife, you know, homeschools our boys. And in order to get the physical fitness requirements in, we've enrolled them at a gym and swim program at the YMCA. And so every Friday, I take them. And we've had this tradition where after we leave, I take them out to lunch. And it's just, uh, you know, father-son time where we get to hang out and have a good time and spend time together. And uh, we went out to a Mexican restaurant a week ago. We love Mexican. And we love chips and queso. We're all about that. And uh, when we finished, we had a little bit of queso left over that the boy said, we can bring it home and mommy can have some. And they're super generous and sharing. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And so we, it was literally like one of the smallest take-home cups you can take home. But it was enough for Kelly to try. And so the next day, we're having tacos for dinner. And halfway through dinner, I remembered that there was queso in the fridge. And so I went to the fridge, and I heated it up, and I poured it on my taco, not thinking about the fact that the boys wanted Kelly to be able to try the queso. And I'm thinking, oh, they won't remember. And so I use all of the queso on my taco, and I enjoy myself. And the next day I come home, and, you know, Kelly says to me, and uh, says, the boys said that you guys brought home some queso from lunch uh, the other day, but I, I couldn't find it in the fridge. And I said, oh, yeah, about that. I, I used it on my taco last night at dinner. And she's like, but the boys said you brought it home for me. And I was like, I'm sorry, hon, I was being selfish. I didn't want to share 
aren't you proud of me? Like, I'm just being honest with you guys. Like, there is this gravitational pull in all of us towards selfishness. We have to train ourselves to open our eyes to the opportunities to where they are. You know, I, and this, can, this one can be hard for me because I'm an introvert and I, in social settings, I don't like talking to people that I don't know. And especially when flying on a plane, it's like I, I fly Southwest a lot of times and it's open seating, as you know, if you've ever flown Southwest. And so when I sit down, I try to find an aisle seat and I'll stick my book bag on the seat next to me in the hope that no one will sit next to me so I don't have to talk to someone for the flight. But but when the flight attendant comes on the you know, overhead and says, we got a full flight today, so don't be thinking that you're going to have an empty seat next to you. I'm like, crap. You know? <laughs> and so I'll put my bag underneath the seat and you know, maybe pretend to sleep so I don't have to engage in conversation with the person next to me. I'm, again, just you know, letting you know, who, you know who I am. It's so holy, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I was listening to a message this week from one of my favorite pastors to listen to, Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands. And apparently he's very much like me in that he likes sleeping on planes, doesn't like engaging in conversations. But there was this one time uh, he was on a flight from, I think, Cincinnati to Boston, he said. And, you know, he's on a window seat and uh, he likes sleeping on planes, like I said. So he just gets in a position as people are boarding and, you know, kind of leans his head against the, the window and puts his arm on the armrest. And some dude sits down right next to him and just pushes his arm right off the armrest and Chris Hodges you know purposefully showing how annoyed he was kind of you know kind of repositions himself and tries to reestablish you know his position on the armrest you know and a minute or two goes by and the guy just like elbows him and Chris what the heck dude he's like hi I'm Billy what do you do and he's like for real I guess I'm not napping and it's in that moment, I, I tell you what, as a pastor, that's one of the worst questions. I hate that question when I'm being introduced to new people because you have to decide in that moment if you're going to lie. <laughs> We're not supposed to lie. Because as soon as you tell someone you're a pastor, they either like turn their nose up at you or they, you know, they feel like they've got to be on their best behavior. Oh, I, I can't swear on you. You're a man of the cloth. You know, you're a pastor. I hate when people change who they are because of what you do. But anyway, he says, I'm a pastor. And as soon as he tells them he's a pastor, Billy starts sobbing, like uncontrollably heaving, sobbing, super loud so that the whole plane is starting to look and say, what is going on? And, you know, Chris is like, great, you know, here we go. I'm going to have to counsel this guy or something. And, you know, so he like tries to console him a little bit and, you know, says, what's going on? And he's like, well, I'm just coming from the funeral of my best friend and I just, I'm never going to see him again. And so Chris starts going through the Rolodex in his mind of things that he can share with him. And he thinks about that verse in Thessalonians, which says, you know, Christians grieve, but not like that. You know, it actually says we grieve, but not like the rest of men who have no hope. And so he turns to Billy and he says, you know, the Bible says, and Billy says, don't go there with me. And he says, well, why not? He's like, I'm a Jew. And Chris says, well, well Jesus was a Jew. He's like, good point. Go ahead. You know? <laughs> and so he shares this verse with him that, you know, Christians grieve, but not like the rest of men who don't have hope. And he starts to share with him about this hope. And they have a conversation on the plane. 
And they're getting off the plane. And he, go, he feels like, you know, I've gotten them to third base. I've planted the seeds. Somebody else will water it and, you know, kind of bring them home. And, you know, they get off the plane. They're in the, the terminal now. And, and, and Billy says, you know, well, how do I get this hope? And Chris is like, for real, man, he just like teed that sucker up. And if, I mean, if you can't hit that, you can't play, you know? And, uh, and he says to him, well, you've got to confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and, and, and you'll be saved. And he's like, I'm ready. Let's do this. And so right there in the airport terminal of Logan International Airport, he grabbed Chris's hands. Chris led him in a salvation prayer. And as soon as they got done praying, he's like, oh, you're right. I feel the hope. And, and Billy says to him, he pulls out his wall. He's like, that was good stuff, man. What do I owe you? <laughs> and Chris was like, no, 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 no. That was free of charge, man. It was my privilege to introduce you to Jesus. He's like, no, seriously, man. I, I'm a wealthy guy. Do you have kids? I own a bunch of toy stores. Can I, I can hook your kids up. And he's like, no, really, man, we're good. I, I'm just happy for you. And uh, he's like, do you have boys? I, I, I'm really good friends with Dennis Eckersley, the Hall of Fame relief pitcher. I can send you some, some signed autographed cards. And he's like, fine, that's good. And so he hands him his business card. And uh, a few days later, you know, he's back home. And sure enough, he gets something in the mail. And it's four autographed Dennis Eckersley baseball cards that Chris says, to this day, he has yet to give to any of his boys. <laughs> He filed three of them away and put one in a frame that he leaves on his desk because every day it's a reminder to him that napping was good for him, not napping was good for Billy. Open your eyes to where they are, the opportunities that are around you every day. We can't live so selfishly. We can't just go to church for us when there's a town all around us. I don't wanna build a church that just has a seat for you. I wanna build a church that has a seat for everyone in our region, everyone in Buffalo. Open your eyes. The third thing we need to do is open our eyes to what they need. Open our eyes to what they need. The church is really confused about this. Daniel in the Old Testament believed in God and lived in Babylon, a very pagan culture, kind of very similar to today. And he stood for truth and still had influence at the same time. And to me, as I look at the landscape of the church culture in our country today, it seems that there are churches trying to do either one or the other. There's a whole group of Christians that think the world just needs truth and it's their job to tell them, you're wrong, you're going to hell, you better turn or you're going to burn, right? You're going to you know, get right or you're going to get left. And, and listen, that is not our message. Our goal shouldn't be to be right. Our goal should be to be effective. We stand for truth, but we can't do it in a way that turns people off. But there's this whole other group of people that says, oh, just, we just got to love them. It doesn't matter what they're doing. It doesn't matter what they believe. We just got to love them. It's mushy, gushy, mushy love. It's all about the love. Can you feel the love? Listen, love is important too. Jesus said that they will know we're his disciples by our love. But we can't throw truth out in the name of love. John wrote in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He gave them both. Chris Hodges says it this way, truth without grace is just mean. Grace without truth though is meaningless. But you put them together and you give people what they really need. Truth and grace is medicine. We've got to open our eyes to this. And I'm going to preach a series on this later on this year based on a book that Pastor Chris Hodges wrote called The Daniel Dilemma. 
to teach us how to stand for God and impact people at the same time, because it can be done. Because listen, if we're not careful, we become the very reason that people turn away from God. The number one reason most people give for why they're not Christians is because of other Christians. Reminds me of the quote by Brennan Manning that I know some of you have heard before, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. You know, another story that I was listening to in that message uh, last week from Pastor Chris Hodges was another plane story. He gets on the plane and uh, Southwest flight, just a quick 50-minute flight. And, um, you know, as like I do, he, he said he was praying that no one would sit next to him. And he sees this girl walk on, you know, who's just like super boisterous and bubbly. And she's like, high five, everybody, high five. You know, she's just like, he's like, oh, no, please, God, no, please don't let her, please don't let her, plop right next to him, right? And so she turns to him and asks the very famous question, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. And she's like, well, duh, we're all passengers. <laughs> a little bit too much to drink. He was flying out of New Orleans. She had spent all day on Bourbon Street. You know, as soon as the flight attendant came by, she already had another drink, you know. He goes, no, I'm a pastor. And she's like, oh, I don't like Christians. And knowing the type that she was probably referring to, he decided to play along and uh, says, you know what? I don't either. You know, I don't like Christians. That's why I had to start my own church. <laughs> And she's like, you got to like Christians. You're a pastor. And he's like, no, I, I, I know what you're talking about. See, Christianity has this branding problem. And he proceeded to explain to her how some people use the Bible to just beat people up over the head with it. And there are other people that are throwing the Bible out in the name of love. And he proceeded to explain to her on this very brief flight, you know, the difference between religion and relationship. And, you know, at the end of the flight, she says, you know, I'd really... I've, I'd like to hear more. You know, what does your God think of this? And she holds out her cup of alcohol and he turns to her and says, I don't think he cares very much about that. I think he cares about you. And if, you, if he ever got you, he might address that later. And she's like, you know, this, this sounds interesting to me. I'd like to hear more. And they were deboarding and he says, tell you what, you know, we've got church tomorrow. We stream all of our services online. And if you tune in tomorrow, I will give you a special shout out at the beginning of my message. And so he did that the next day. He welcomed everyone like he always does. And then he says, and I'd like to give a special shout out to my good friend, Tanya. Girl, I told you I'd do it. And he did it just like that, not knowing if she was actually even watching. And sure enough, she was. And she emailed him later that day and said this, among other things, she wrote to him, and she said, I understand the gospel for the first time. I had let Christians turn me off from it, but I'm now ready to surrender my life to Jesus. And he called her up and he led her to the Lord. Church, can I be honest with you? I want stories like that for myself. I do. I want to have stories like that. I want to live my life that way. Because as a pastor, it can be easy to feel like I'm doing my job just because I preach every single Sunday. Of course, I'm preaching the gospel. But I want to live my life Monday through Saturday with eyes wide open to who they are, to where they are, and to what they need. And I hope that maybe you'll make it a goal this year to live your life the same way too. 
Listen, I want to give you a few quick things because this part of it can be really intimidating to people, especially if you're newer to faith. This idea of personal evangelism and sharing your faith is like, oh, no, I don't know enough about the Bible. What if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? What am I supposed to do? Listen, I'm going to set you free today. I'm going to give you four quick pointers as we get ready to close. And if you write notes down, you want to, you want to write this down. Number one, and listen, we're going to teach this in Growth Path. This is part of step one at Growth Path, which is happening later on this morning in the next service. But the first thing you have to do is accept the personal responsibility. Accept the personal responsibility. If you're newer to faith, what you may not know, but you now will know is that the church which you are, if you're a believer in Jesus, is God's plan A. And he doesn't have a plan B. So God's plan to reach this region is us. We've got to accept the personal responsibility. If you need a verse for that, write down Ephesians 3.10, which says it was his intent that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to this region through us. We are the message carriers to your friends, your family, your neighbors, your classmates, and your coworkers. We have to accept that it's our responsibility to reach the people in our lives. Number two, we've got to build a personal relationship. We don't go up to people that we don't know or don't have a relationship with and say, hey, if you don't get your life right, you're going to go to hell. That's not our message. We need to listen to me. We need to connect before we correct. Connect before we correct. Build a personal relationship. That's what Jesus did with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up into the sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? He was a seeker. He was a spiritual seeker. He was a tax collector. And Jesus knew that he was scamming people from, his, from their money. But the first words out of Jesus' mouth, let's have lunch together, right? He didn't, he didn't talk about money. He built a personal relationship with him. We don't know what happened at lunch, but at, he came out of lunch and Zacchaeus was giving all of his money away. We got to build a personal relationship. Find what John Maxwell calls the spiritual spot. Every person has a spiritual spot. And a little clue for you, it's usually family. And if they have kids, it's usually their kids. Take interest in their kids. Ask them what's happening in their lives and say, you know what? If you don't mind, I'd love to, to pray for that. Find their spiritual spot. Build a personal relationship. And then look for an opportunity to, number three, share your personal story. This is the part that's going to set you free, guys, when it comes to personal evangelism. Just share your personal story. Evangelism is telling a, isn't telling a person what's wrong with them. It's telling a person what has happened to you. You don't have to know the whole Bible, know every answer to share your faith. You just have to be willing to tell people how Jesus has changed your life. Acts 1.8 says we are his witnesses. What does a witness do? We tell our side of the story. So we accept the personal responsibility. We build a personal relationship. We share our personal story. And then number four, we give a personal invitation. If you feel comfortable leading someone to Christ, by all means, go for it. And I believe every Christian should learn how to lead other people to faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're newer to faith, then listen. Give a personal invitation to have them come with you to church. Just have them come with you to church. And I can promise you that when they come, we're going to start on time. 
They're gonna experience friendly, welcoming people who will just embrace them and love them. The place is gonna be prepared. The table's gonna be set. If they have kids, their kids are gonna be treated well. They're gonna have a blast. The worship is gonna be powerful. The message is gonna be relevant. And almost every single Sunday, they will have an opportunity to respond to the invitation to receive and follow Jesus Christ. Listen to me, guys, if you could just make this a goal, give me two Sundays out of 52 this year. Two out of 52 where you bring an unchurched, far from God person to sit next to you. And when you do, listen, you're gonna be nervous that Sunday. You're gonna be like, man, I hope they play this song. I hope they don't play that song. I hope, I hope the message is good and you know, no pressure on me, right? But listen to me, you need to feel that tension. You need to feel that. I want this for you, for you, because there's nothing like, you need to experience the joy that comes from knowing that you played a part in someone's eternal destiny changing. And when your friend raises their hand in response to that invitation at the end of the message, and you'll know that God used you to bring that person to that point of decision. That'll be your best, your favorite Sunday ever at Life Church Buffalo. We gotta open our eyes, church, to who they are, to where they are, and to what they need. And I hope you'll join me in making that one of your goals this year. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just, I pray right now for a spirit of evangelism to fall in our church, God that we would all see ourselves as the message carriers, as having the responsibility to carry out the mission that you came to, to start and that you handed off to your disciples, which is still being carried out to this day, that we would go. Lord, that you would right now bring to our minds, Lord, the, the names and faces of people in our lives who are right now headed for an eternity, forever separated from you unless we can do what we can to compel them to come in and taste and see how good you are. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a seeker, you're just, you're starting out the new year trying to find some meaning in your life. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe like Billy, you don't have any hope. Or maybe like Tanya, other, you've met other Christians and they, you know, they turned you off. But today you know that Jesus is real and he wants a relationship with you. If you want to have that hope living inside of you, if you want to have a relationship with Jesus with all heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask you to, in light of the name of this message, all other heads bowed, if you want to say yes to Jesus today, I want you just to lift your head and open your eyes and look at me. Just maybe raise your hand. Acknowledge that you want to say yes to Jesus today. You want to begin a relationship with him. Is there anybody here today that wants to say yes to Jesus? You want to change your eternal destiny. You want to have purpose and meaning. Is there anybody here? Well, God, I pray for those. I see that hand over there. I'm so proud of you. Good job. Is there anybody else? Anybody else? Well, church, would you join me and lift your voices in praying with this person who is saying yes to Jesus today? Say, dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. 
I believe you rose from the dead. Today I receive what you did for me by surrendering my life to you completely, all of it. I give it to you. Forgive me, change me, come live inside of me. Be the Lord of my life. From this day forward, I give you my life. I choose to follow you. Thank you for setting me free. Now open my eyes to the people in my life who need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Life Church Buffalo, would you lift up a shout of praise to welcome the newest members to the family of God?